Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to be with you again. Um, if I've never had the chance of meeting you in person, this is the first time. Uh, my name is Mike Sorsinelli. I have the uh, privilege of serving on the board here at Chair City Community Church. Such a privilege to be uh, Dave's friend. Uh, Dave and I are close friends, and it's just been uh, so nice to journey with you guys over these past few years and see you all move into a building of your own. I know it's not official yet, but I know it's also coming right down to the wire. Uh, we've been sending teams to come work with you, so you've probably met a handful of the people from New Day Church, and it's just so exciting to see God moving in churches um, anywhere, but you know, I'm a little partial. Uh, I'm extra excited to see God moving in churches in Massachusetts, and uh, we just got some good news of our own. We're not nearly as far along as you guys are in your process, but we too have entered into a purchase and sales agreement on a building of our own, so... Really exciting. Uh, just the other night on Friday, uh, we, we had a prayer meeting. We had a bunch of people yeah. come out, but it's a bummer when a prayer meeting costs $1,000 because you're in a rented space, you know, and uh, we'll be moving into a space of our own and uh, can do a prayer meeting anytime we want. It won't cost anything. So we're just really excited, and it's just great to be here with you today. Um, your pastor, Pastor Dave, asked me several times to come and speak here um, over the last couple months. And uh, just schedules didn't kind of line up. And um, I finally had a Sunday open. And I said, Pastor Dave, you know, if you want me to come, um, I actually have a Sunday free. Because he had asked me two times in a row. And I had to say, sorry, I can't make it. But uh, I'm just so glad that today worked out. I love being with you all. Um, you guys are so friendly and warm. I feel like I'm a part of your family when I'm here. Um, I think I get more hugs here than I do at my own church. I'm not sure what that says about me at my church. But uh, you guys are the friendliest church out there. It's just awesome. So... Uh, great to be here with you today. So that um, Easter invite video there um, is kind of the perfect segue into my message because Easter Sunday is one week away. And so I came here today thinking how appropriate would it be for us um, to take, take the next you know, 35, 40 minutes here and, and, and try to answer this question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? I'm going to say it once more because this is what we're talking about today. I came here today to talk to you about answering this question, did Jesus really rise from the dead? And there truly is no more important question that we could ask than that question. Because if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then Christianity is a sham. If Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, in other words, if Jesus' resurrection is a hoax and not history, then the entire foundation upon which uh, Christianity stands crumbles, and Christianity crumbles along with it. Um, here's a pretty big one. If, if the resurrection of Jesus is a hoax and not history, then the bad news is that we are still dead in our sins and our transgressions. 1 Corinthians 15, 17 sums it up nicely saying this, If Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. So, I mean, we have not found salvation if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And then finally, if the resurrection of Jesus is a hoax and not history, then you know what? It's really not worth the effort it might take you to go ahead and invite your neighbors or your coworkers or your family members or your unsaved friends to Easter services next Sunday. It's not worth it. Because if you didn't rise from the dead, then the whole thing is a sham. 
So again, this is a super important question for us to ask and try to answer. So today, instead of being the preacher, today I'm going to be the lawyer. And today, instead of being the congregation, you're going to be the jury. And today, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to present to you four pieces of evidence that, that to me, powerfully argue in favor of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This afternoon, when you go see The Case for Christ, um, this is going to be another great um, way to kind of understand the reality that Jesus really rose from the dead, but we're going to give you a little preview of that um, in today's sermon. So again, I'm the lawyer, you're the jury. The question on the line is this, was Jesus' resurrection a hoax or history? I'm going to present the evidence to you at the end of our time together. You have to make the verdict. So here's an overview of where we're going today. I'm going to begin by sharing the evidence of the empty tomb. And then we're going to go ahead and share the evidence of the postmortem appearances of Jesus Christ. And then we're going to go ahead and move um, into the uh, evidence of changed lives. And then we're going to wrap things up today talking about the evidence of the meteoric star and rise of the church. I hope you're going to have fun as we go through this together. I certainly know that I will. Let's begin with the first piece of evidence. The empty tomb. After Jesus died, three days later, the tomb was empty. Like, whether you were a Christian or a skeptic, whether you loved Jesus or hated Christianity, doesn't matter. Everyone agrees, historically, that after three days, Jesus' tomb was empty. There was no arguments over that whatsoever. There were, however, arguments concerning the reason why the tomb was empty. That's what the argument was over. So I'm going to share with you what the Christians claim, and I'm going to share with you what the skeptics claimed. First, Christians claimed that the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the grave. We find this in Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 to 7. It says this, After the Sabbath, at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He's risen from the dead, and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you're going to see him. Now I have told you. So the Christian claim is that the reason the tomb was empty is because Jesus actually rose from the dead as he had been saying he would. Remember he said, tear down this temple and three days later, I'll build it up again. This was a prophecy of his resurrection. Now, though the Christians claim the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead, skeptics claim something entirely different. And we're going to call this the heist theory. Everyone say heist. Heist, all right. The heist theory. The heist theory says that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. That's not why the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty because Jesus' disciples stole him. They snuck past the Romans' guards in the night. They, they moved the tomb, and they stole Jesus' body. We read this in Matthew 28, verses 11 to 16. While the women were on their way to tell the disciples that Jesus had risen from the dead, some of the guards who had been on guard at Jesus' tomb 
They went into the city, the city of Jerusalem, and they reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. We were there, an angel appeared, we shook with fear, we fell over, the tomb was empty, this is crazy. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they did this. They gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, here's what you're to say. His disciples came during the night, and they stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we're going to satisfy him and keep you out of trouble, so don't worry. So the soldiers agreed, they took the money, and they did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So, so while the Christians claimed the tomb was empty because Jesus rose from the dead, uh, the, the skeptics, the, the non-believers say, nah, the tomb was empty because Jesus' disciples came during the night, snuck past the elite Roman guards, stole the body, and that explains why the tomb is empty. So, you're the jury. Your job is to weigh the evidence. Here's some things I want you to consider. Number one, why would Jesus' disciples steal his body? What was their motive? Like when bank robbers rob a bank, why do they do so? Because they stand to gain something. In this case, millions and millions of dollars. But what was the motive for Jesus' disciples to steal his body? What would they gain? Would they gain fame? Would they gain prestige? Would they gain riches? Would they gain honor? And the answer to every single one of these questions is no. They gained nothing except the following. They were put to death by some of the cruelest methods available in that time. For example, Peter, Andrew, James, son of Alphaeus, Philip, Simon, and Bartholomew, they were all crucified. Some of them upside down, not considering themselves worthy to be crucified in the same manner that Christ had been crucified with. Matthew and James, son of Zebedee, were killed by the sword. Thaddeus was shot with arrows until dead. My dad's a bow hunter. That sounds horrible. James, the brother of Jesus, was killed by being stoned to death with rocks. Doubting Thomas was killed with a spear. These men were subjected to torture. They were executed violent deaths because they wouldn't stop claiming that Jesus had risen from the dead. Rather than recant their belief, they laid down their lives as the ultimate proof in their confidence that Jesus really, truly rose. So again, what was their motive for stealing Jesus' body? They didn't get riches. They didn't get honor. They got killed. And even though this one saw the last two get murdered, this one wouldn't recant his testimony either. Nor would this one or this one or this one or this one. Hey, here's another thing for you, the jury, to consider. Who would die for a lie? Some people die for a lie that they mistakenly believe is the truth, but who would willingly, knowingly die for what they knew was a lie? I mean, the disciples were in a position to know whether or not they were lying. And like, as they were about to stick the spear through him, as they were about to shoot him with arrows, they could have said, wait a minute, hold up, this has gone way too far. Like, we buried him under an oak tree on the road that leads from Jerusalem to Emmaus. Go find him, but please don't kill me. They would have known if they were lying. And who would die for a lie? Some of you say, well, maybe... One of them might have died for a lie, but here's the thing. They all died. And would they all have died 
for a lie they knew was a lie. Here's another question I have for you, the jury. How likely is it that all the Roman guards fell asleep when the penalty for doing so was death? How likely was it the Roman guards stayed asleep while a huge stone estimated to have weighed 4,000 pounds was lifted up and rolled over, breaking the seal they had placed on the tomb, and they all just slept through it? How probable is that? I know it's possible, what is it? Another question. How likely is it? This is my favorite one, okay? If you fell asleep, wake up for just a second. Listen to this one, okay? Listen to this one. If the Roman guards were sleeping as the Jews claimed, then how would the sleeping guards have known that the disciples came and stole the body? They were supposed to be asleep. Friends, you have to decide for you, but for me, I think this whole explanation of Jesus' disciples stealing his body is a strong argument in favor of the reality of the resurrection because this whole, this whole uh, claim, this whole heist theory was fabricated to account for an empty tomb. The empty tomb is an argument in favor of the reality of the resurrection. All right, jury, you're doing a great job. I see everyone's tuned in. That's awesome. Let's move now from the first piece of evidence, the empty tomb, to the second piece of evidence, which we're going to call the appearances. The appearances. Christians claim that after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to both individuals and groups of people. Let me show you where this is in Scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, the Apostle Paul writes, the following. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said he would. He was seen by Peter and then the twelve. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive. Everyone say, still alive. Most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, Paul says, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. The apostle Paul claims not only that Jesus appeared to over 500 people, but did you notice what he said in verse 6? I know you did. I had you repeat it. He says, most of whom are still living. What was he saying when he said that other than this? If you don't believe me, go ask him. This is a powerful argument for the reality of the resurrection because if it was a hoax, why in the world would you go encourage the skeptics to go interview 500 plus people who all said the same thing? Hey, I got to ask you something. Here we are 2,000 years later reading from the book of 1 Corinthians as are hundreds if not thousands of churches across the country and around the world. Let me ask you, how did the book of 1 Corinthians survive if the Apostle Paul in the first century, only 15 to 20 years after the death of Jesus, invited skeptics to go ahead and interview the people who saw Jesus alive after his death? Would this letter have been able to survive? Would this letter still be preached across the country and around the world and here at Chair City Community Church this morning if the claims that Paul made would have been proven to be false? I would say to you, as your lawyer, I don't think there's any way that that could have happened, but you have to decide for yourself. Now, 
even though we have powerful eyewitness testimony, which, by the way, is the most powerful kind of testimony. You guys know this, right? On the account of one eyewitness in modern day times, on the account of one eyewitness, someone could be sent to prison for life. One eyewitness. That's how powerful eyewitness testimony is. Well, here are 500 plus people who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus. Regardless, nevertheless, even though we have powerful eyewitness testimony confirming Jesus' post-mortem appearances by both individuals and groups of people, skeptics have invented uh, what we're going to call the hallucination theory. And I'm going to ask our video team in the back to just kind of get that video cued, but don't play it just yet. I'm just giving you a heads up. The hallucination theory says this. We just looked at the heist theory. Now we're looking at the hallucination theory. The hallucination theory says this. 500 plus people, though some of them were here, some of them were here, Jesus appeared to some of them at this time, some of them at that time, over 500 people, they all just hallucinated the same thing. That's what explains all these people going around Jerusalem claiming that Jesus has risen from the dead and claiming that they saw him do so. They say, no, no, it was just a a mass hallucination. But I would just ask you, put on your common sense caps, okay, and just think about it for a minute. Is it reasonable to believe that even two people would dream the same thing or hallucinate the same thing? And if it's unreasonable that two people would even do so, how much more so is it over 500 people? would do so. I think this video that I'm going to show you here um, illustrates well the point I'm trying to make. Take a look, please. I had a weird dream last night. Hmm. I don't want to hear about your dream. Why not? It's not relevant. To what? To me. I owned a taco truck in the dream, and it was... What did I just... That's funny. I had a similar dream. Taco truck. Yeah, sort of. It was, well, it was more like a pickup truck with one of those uh, camper-like things on the back. A North Star Igloo on a Chevy Colorado 4x4? Totally. But instead of selling tacos, I was renting these giant DVDs from the 80s. Yeah, laser discs. me too. But all I had were 12 copies of Hellraiser 4 and one used-up copy of The Goonies. But it, but had, it had a big scratch down the middle and it kept skipping on the part where Sloth is like, I love you, Chunk! Yeah, I and mean, this one guy was super upset, man. He hated Chunk. I think he just wanted a taco. Right, Mr. Hell Neff said, well, I'm supposed to eat a laser disc for lunch. Good point. I don't have an answer, but when I went to tell him, Butterflies flew out, out of my mouth and started flying in formation. formation like the Blue Angels, only they formed the shape of Zsa Zsa Gabor, but it wasn't really Zsa Zsa Gabor at all. It was my second grade teacher, teacher Mrs. Mr. Elliot. Wilcox. Wait, who? Mr. Wilcox. My second grade teacher? It's a totally different dream. I don't know about totally, but there were some similarities. I guess we all hear what we want to hear. Friends, the reason you're laughing at the video is because of how ridiculous it would be for any two people to dream the same dream. How then does anyone buy the hallucination theory that says 500 plus people all had the same hallucination? Jesus appeared not just one time, but many times. Not just in one place, but at a variety of places under a variety of circumstances. Not just to one individual, but to different people. Not just to individuals, but to various groups. Not just to Jesus' friends, but to Jesus' enemies. How likely is it they all had the same exact hallucination? I can't help but say this one little last part before we move on to the third piece of evidence. 
if they did just mass hallucinate, then why didn't the Jewish and Roman authorities go ahead and parade Jesus' body around the city to just prove to everyone that it was just a big mass hallucination? That would have put an end instantly and permanently to Christianity. They would have loved to, but back to our first point, the tomb was empty. So they couldn't. All right, number three. I got to yell at you today. I'm a lawyer, okay? I'm not a preacher today. I'm a lawyer. All right, number three. Third piece of evidence is this, the evidence of the changed lives. This is my favorite, favorite piece of evidence here. The numerous and suddenly changed lives of Jesus' followers strongly argue for the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a couple examples of people whose lives were radically transformed right after Jesus' death. We have to ask ourselves, what caused these radical transformations? And you've got to decide as the jury. Let's look at a couple different people. First, let's look at the Apostle Peter. In John 18, when Jesus is on trial and about to be crucified, Peter is afraid for his life, and he is so scared that even when a little girl comes up to him and goes, hey, aren't you one of Jesus' followers? He says, I don't even know the man. And he denies Jesus three times. But then, after Jesus' resurrection in Acts chapter 2, we find this same person boldly preaching to tens of thousands of people who would have filled Jerusalem for the Passover feast, and he is boldly proclaiming Jesus, and he's not scared of going to jail. He's not scared of dying. What caused such a transformation. But it's not just the Apostle Peter. Let's look at the second group of people here. The other apostles, they also had radically transformed lives. For example, when the authorities captured Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, the Bible tells us that all the apostles scattered. They were all afraid of being arrested. They were afraid of dying, and they fled. After Jesus was crucified, what do we find the apostles, the big, bold, brave, faith-filled apostles, what are they doing? They're hiding in a room with the door locked out of fear. Just a couple days later, after Jesus died, though, all of the sudden, this fearful group of people become a band of bold witnesses for Jesus. They're enthusiasts who are willing to face a life of suffering for the cause of Christ. What happened? Not just the Apostle Peter, not just the other apostles, but let's look at Jesus' brother, James, as a third example. Neither James nor any of Jesus' brothers believed in him during his lifetime, according to Mark chapter 3 and John chapter 7. But after the resurrection, Jesus' brothers show up in the Christian fellowship in the upper room meaning they had become followers of Jesus. Not only did James become a Christian, he also became an apostle, according to Galatians chapter 1, verse 19. And not only apostle, he became the lead pastor of the church, the, the church in Jerusalem, according to um, Acts chapter 21, verse 18. Now this James was stoned to death illegally by the Sanhedrin sometime after A.D. 60 because of his refusal to recant his belief that his brother was the Son of God, the promised Messiah. What would it take for you to believe that one of your siblings was the Son of God? It'd take a lot for me, I'm just saying. And it would take a lot for my brother and my sister to believe that I was, you know, like, 
But his brothers believe that. And we got to ask ourselves, like, what, what, what caused the change? They didn't believe in him during his life. What happened then after he died that changed their mind? Finally, the Apostle Paul. Let's look at him, and then we'll move on to our next point. But the Apostle Paul. He was a rabbi, a Pharisee, a respected Jewish leader. He hated the Christian heresy, that's what he called it, and he did everything in his power to stamp it out. He tells us that he was even responsible for the execution of Christian believers, including, but not limited to, the first Christian martyr, Stephen, that we read about in the book of Acts. Then suddenly... He went from hating the Christian heresy, violently persecuting the church, arresting Christians, and he became a Christian missionary. He entered a life of poverty, labor, and suffering. He was whipped, beaten, stoned, and left for dead, shipwrecked three times in constant danger, deprivation, and anxiety. And he finally made the ultimate sacrifice as he was martyred for his faith in Rome. What accounts? for this change. Something had to happen for Peter, for the other apostles, for James, the brother of Jesus, and for the apostle Paul to have radically changed their lives. The Christian claim you won't be surprised to hear is that the thing responsible for these radically changed lives was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Like like they saw someone they had watched die after being crucified on the cross they saw him alive after his death that perfectly explains this radical change why are these apostles no longer afraid for their lives because they saw that death had been conquered they saw that if they were died they would just live again even as jesus lived again nevertheless skeptics claim the following they believe in what's called the swoon theory. In point one, we looked at the heist theory. In point two, we looked at the hallucination theory. Here in point three, we're looking at the swoon theory, which says this. Jesus didn't die on the cross. He was still alive when he was placed in the tomb. But he somehow escaped and convinced his disciples he had risen from the dead. Hey, that's a, that's a theory. There's no evidence for it, but that's a, that's a theory. But if it's true, let's just kind of talk about this for just a minute. The Romans who were professional executioners, they did not go and break Jesus's legs as they did the other two criminals on the cross because they had concluded that Jesus was dead. Were these professional killers mistaken? Could they not tell if someone was dead or alive? Another thing to think about is this. It's not just the Christian record that claims Jesus was dead. Historians such as, first century historians such as Josephus, um, Tacitus, Thallus, they all also record that Jesus died by crucifixion. These weren't, these weren't Christian records. As does the Talmud, which is a source not considered friendly to, to Christianity. That's, that's the Jewish Talmud. All of these sources claim that Jesus died. So the swoon theory flies in the face of first century evidence that states Jesus died. Here's another thing to think about. Jesus was embalmed with 75 pounds of, uh, of you know, uh, spices and, and, you know, the bandages and all these kinds of things. L- let me ask you this. How many of you have kids? Raise your hand real quick. I got four kids. Okay, wow, be fruitful and multiply. You guys are obeying that command. Awesome. <laughs> what happens when your kid scrapes their knee? 
and they come to you and you got a little bit of hydrogen peroxide on the little, you know, the, the, and you try to clean that wound. What do they, what do, they do? They just, <laughs> they flinch, right? Now they flinch at just a scrape. Jesus was whipped with the cat of nine tails. He had the crown of thorns on his head. The nails went through his hands and his feet. He was impaled with a spear in his side. Not to mention he was punched, whacked on the head. All these things, how probable, I know it's possible, but how probable is it that he was able to stay so still that he tricked Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea as they embalmed him with 75 pounds of spices? Could he have hit his breathing during the several hour-long embalming process? Possible, yes. Probable, you have to decide. How did Jesus stay alive for three days, being in the poor physical condition he was in, if he did fake his death? I mean, think of someone in a terrible automobile accident. They would have to be hospitalized and put on saline and medicated and no medication, no hospital, no antibiotics, no treatment, no pain relievers, no morphine, no any of that. How did he stay alive for three days? Not to mention in the pitiful physical condition that he was in, how would he have had the strength only three days after being crucified to lift up the 4,000-pound stone? That's what scholars are, estimate, the uh, two tons. How did he lift it up and move it aside, breaking the Roman seal that make it even more difficult to move besides the weight of it? Finally, in the pitiful physical condition he was in, would Jesus have convinced the scared, scattered, skeptical disciples that he was a conquering king who had triumphed over death? Would Jesus appearing in that kind of condition been responsible for the radical transformation that took place in the lives of his apostles and his disciples? You have to make up your mind, but before you do, let me present to you one last piece of evidence. The evidence of the church. The start and meteoric rise of the church argues powerfully in favor of the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let me put it to you this way. Imagine when Chair City Community Church first started. After five weeks, you were running 10,000 people. Wouldn't that require an explanation? You know that pastors like myself and others would be like, yo, Pastor Dave, like, what are you, what's your secret? You know, like, what happened over here? How many churches have you heard of in the last hundred years that started and then five weeks later, like, grew to 10,000 people? Oh, none? Yeah, yeah, me neither. Because they don't exist. How did this church in Jerusalem start and grow to 10,000 people in five weeks' time? This phenomenon, this miracle, it requires explanation. The question is, what caused it? Here's the, here's, the Christian, here's the Christian's belief. The Christians claim this, that Jesus' resurrection perfectly explains the growth and rise of the first century church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the Bible says this, those who accepted his, Peter's message on the day of Pentecost, were baptized and about 3,000 people were added to their number that day. That's 3,000 people in Jerusalem, the same place Jesus died, was buried, and his followers claimed rose from the dead. 3,000 people after one sermon. 
that Peter hadn't even prepared for. Think about it. It just kind of happened spur of the moment. He didn't write the sermon and work on it hard all week like I did with this one. He just kind of spurred the moment. Yeah, guys, what happened is Jesus rose from the dead and he's appeared, he's alive, he's conquered death. And 3,000 people go, sign me up! Like, didn't there have to be something behind it? Didn't they have to know some of the people who, who saw Jesus appear? Maybe they saw it themselves. I mean, something crazy is going on here. What explains it? In Acts chapter 4, verse 4, the Bible says, Many of those who heard the word, the word about Jesus, that he rose from the dead, believed in the number of men alone, not women, not children, just the number of men, came to be about 5,000. Say, where'd you get the number 10,000 from? It says 5,000. It says 5,000 men. If you got 5,000 men between women and children, this is a day and age before birth control, okay? When you have 5,000 men, when you include the women and the children and everybody else, you're talking minimum 10 to 15,000 people. But it gets worse in Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It says, so the word of God spread and the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. So even once they had grown to 10,000, the Bible says, and the Lord added daily to the number of those being saved. People wouldn't stop getting saved. What caused it? What caused it? What made the church come into existence and so forcefully? What caused the movement to explode in growth? I'm going to propose that it makes no sense apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Dr. Daniel Fuller has rightly stated, to try to explain the church without reference to the resurrection is as hopeless as trying to explain Roman history without reference to Julius Caesar. Think about this. A rabbi named Jesus appears from a lower class region. He teaches for three years, gathers a following of lower and middle class people, gets in trouble with the authorities, gets crucified along with 30,000 other Jewish men who are executed during the same time period. But somehow within a brief period of time, after Jesus' death, the Christian faith spreads rapidly throughout Palestine and then beyond until it finally permeates the entire Roman Empire. Its origins can be traced directly back to the city of Jerusalem in Palestine about A.D. 30, right around the time Jesus died and the disciples and others claimed he rose from the dead and that they saw him alive. It took root and thrived in the very city where Jesus was crucified and buried. As a result of the first sermon, 3,000 get saved. The number grows to 5,000 men, which means 10 to 15,000 women. And then the Lord adds daily to the number those being saved afterwards. What explains it? Could all these converts have been made if Jesus had not been raised from the dead? It's not just the huge numbers that have to be explained. You guys probably know that these first Jewish Christians changed the sacred Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday. Why did that happen? The Jews believed they would incur God's wrath and judgment for not honoring the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Yet they changed the Sabbath day from Saturday to Sunday. Why would they have done that? Other than Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday. You know what's really cool? In point number one, I had to say, here's the heist theory, and then I had to shoot holes in it. In point number two, I said, here's the hallucination theory, and then I had to shoot holes in it. In the third point, I had to say, here's the swoon theory, and then I had to shoot holes in it. You know what's so awesome about the meteoric star and rise of the church? 
there are no alternate theories, even though people for some 2,000 years have been trying to discredit the reality of the resurrection. There's no alternate theories. In other words, skeptics have zero explanation for how the church started and exploded in growth. As someone once wrote, the cat of conclusive evidence has their tongue on this point. I close with this. I have presented to you today four evidences. The evidence of the empty tomb, the evidence of the post-mortem appearances of Jesus Christ, the evidence of the changed lives, and finally the evidence of the meteoric rise of the church. I've also shared with you, the jury who has to make a decision, the alternate theories of what could have happened. But I want to point out, and I want to close my argument with this. A theory is not evidence. Can we say that out loud? A theory is not evidence. Now let's say it like we believe it. A theory is not evidence. Skeptics can present a theory as an alternative explanation for what happened in the tomb or what happened with the appearances of Jesus and the people who claim to follow him. But a theory is not evidence. I'll illustrate it this way. Let's pretend someone came up with a theory that the Jews were not really put in concentration camps. The Holocaust never really happened. My theory is that it was all made up so that people would have sympathy for an Israel state. That, that's my theory. Who would buy it? No one would buy it. Why? Because there is evidence to the contrary. In the same way, the skeptics can come up with alternate theories of what happened. But do you know there's not a single shred of first century evidence from history that can support the theory? They've all been made up for the sake of people who want to excuse themselves from the responsibility they would have to follow Jesus if he really resurrected from the grave. Now, when it comes to Jesus' resurrection, on the other hand, we have first century evidence. Does it prove it? No. But it makes the theories improbable. And it certainly opens up the possibility that the biblical claim is correct. Jesus rose from the dead. I'm going to ask the worship team at this time to join me on the stage. I've been the lawyer. You've been the jury. And now it's time for you to decide, was the resurrection of Jesus Christ hoax or history? You have to decide. To not make a decision is to decide it's a hoax. So today, I, I'm asking you, I'm imploring you, I'm encouraging you, I'm exhorting you. You have to make the decision, hoax or history. Hoax or history. Hoax or history. Some of you here today, you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and man, you just came on the right day. You might be thinking right now, I came on the wrong day, but I'm telling you, you came on the right day. Because today's the opportunity that you have to acknowledge the truth that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God, that he did come to earth to die on a cross in our place for our sins, that he did after three days rise from the grave. 
and that if you will place your faith and trust in him to forgive your sins, you too can have life after death, even as Jesus himself did. I'm going to pray two prayers today. The first is for those of you who would like to accept Jesus. Would you bow your head? Would you close your eyes? And if that's you and you want to acknowledge the reality of the resurrection, why don't you say a prayer like this, not out loud, but say this in your heart to God. Say something like this in your heart to God. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe in the resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. I believe he was sent to earth to die on the cross in my place for my sins. And I believe after three days he rose from the grave. I believe the tomb was empty because by your power you raised him to life. And God, I'm here today to let you know that I I believe in that power. And I'm trusting in that power to forgive me of my sins and to raise me into a new life in Christ. God, I thank you for your gift of salvation. God, I thank you for the gift of eternal life. Friends, while your heads are still bowed and while we're still in an attitude of prayer, let me just say this. If you've already acknowledged Jesus as Savior, that's awesome, but you're not off the hook today either. If you've already accepted Jesus Christ as Savior, you now have a responsibility to share the good news of Jesus' resurrection with others. And can I tell you that next Sunday, Easter Sunday, you're going to have the perfect opportunity to do that. It's why you've received invite cards, Easter tickets in your bulletin today. And I just want us to take a minute to get in our minds right now a lost friend or family member or coworker or neighbor And we're going to end our time together in prayer just praying over those souls and praying for you to have boldness to invite them to church next week so they can personally experience the life-giving, changing power of our resurrected Savior, Jesus Christ. You got that person in your mind? Let's pray for him. I'm praying for my neighbor, Matt. He's living with his girlfriend. He was raised in church. He doesn't yet know the Lord. I'm praying for Matt. Who are you praying for? Who you praying for? Get him in your mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just lift up um, everyone that we have in our minds right now that don't know you yet. And God, in faith, we give you praise and thanks in advance for their salvation. God, we pray that through Easter Sunday, God, that you would use Pastor Dave and his sermon and that you would anoint him powerfully by your Holy Spirit to just share the good news about Jesus, that there's peace with God through Jesus. And God, I pray that as people hear that message, they would bow the knee of their heart to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God, I pray for boldness to come over this church. And I pray, Lord, that whatever fear they might have would be conquered by the need of someone who does not yet know Jesus. May the need of that person far from God overcome and outweigh the the fear that we sometimes feel in inviting people to Jesus. God, help us to remember we have nothing to fear. Jesus has conquered death in the grave. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' mighty name, and we give you thanks. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. God bless you.